Please be opening your Bibles to... We're going to have two texts this morning that we're going to be looking at. I want you to try to have a mark in both because we're going to want to turn back and forth to those. And they'll be in Titus 3, 10 and 11 and Romans 16, 17 and 18. I love this church. Because of my great love for this church, I care deeply about its health and its unity. Disunity and discord and dissensions are a crippling presence in any church. It's impossible for us to battle out there if we're distracted with conflict in here. Amen? And Satan knows that. He's wicked, but he ain't no dummy. So producing dissensions within the church is exactly what he labors to do. That's where he spends a large majority of his time. He's been pretty effective. Last week we examined one of Satan's primary tactics. He plants a scandalmonger. Being completely deceived, the scandalmonger usually isn't even aware of his own wickedness. Doesn't know what he's doing. But whether he's aware of it or not, he's being used as a tool in the hand of the enemy. The scandalmonger works stealthily to sow seeds of discord in healthy churches because Satan hates healthy churches. Man, he hates them. He hates churches that are unified in their doctrine and their mission. We are, aren't we? We're a church that understands who we are, what we believe, and what we're called to do. He hates that. And he despises churches that are actually growing and making disciples because it's such a rare thing to see. The scandalmonger is blinded by all of the obvious signs of health in the church that he's a part of. And he hones in on some of his preferences or his unmet expectations. He takes people aside and secretly vents to them or secretly thinks through some of the things that have been bothering him or some of the things with which he's struggling. Notice how he words things. He makes himself into a pitiable, sympathetic figure. And in order for him to share his heart, but in order for him to share his heart, he slanders the reputation of people who aren't even present. Or you can only hear his side of events. And he'll, either, he'll even attack the overall culture of the church to pull people into his offenses against others. Put those seeds of doubt in their heart. We've let this behavior go on without addressing it publicly for far too long at Maynardville Fellowship. And as a result... David and I have had two long weeks of whoopings. A whooping we needed, and one for which we are genuinely thankful because it drove us to the Scriptures first, and through the Scriptures it drove us to repentance. And praise God for that. But as a result, we're in the middle of a drastic culture change that can be summed up with uh, the phrase, this, is, this stuff ain't going to fly no more. Not because we say so, but because the Word of God says so. Last week I laid out the biblical response to gossip and it was refused to be a confidant. When you invoke the name of a person that's not present, you lose confidence. You don't get to be in a secret place with an offense. You defend the character of the person being attacked. You don't, you don't join in and even get to kick them one time. You don't get to see, I, I see where you're coming from, or you hold up. We're not going to do this to my brother when he's not around. Immediately. We train ourselves. Bad things said, I'm going to defend that person because he's voiceless and helpless. Because he's not here. And then lastly, we're going to call the gossip to repentance. Because what he's saying might be true, but what he's doing is absolutely wrong. The person he's accusing might be wrong. He is wrong. We're going to call him to repentance and then we're going to deal with the issue. But it's possible that he's bearing false witness or misrepresenting things or not understanding things rightly. And if it's a false witness, then he needs to repent. But it's got to be dealt with. So what do you do 
You set up a meeting between you and the two parties. If the accusation shows itself to be true, you deal with the sin accordingly. If it proves to be false, you deal with a false witness who's sowing discord in the church through their lies. But unfortunately, not everyone plays nice when this process is carried out as the Bible requires. Sometimes they get mad. They refuse to follow the biblically prescribed steps. They rebel against the authority of Scripture and the authority of the church. So what are we supposed to do when the scandal monger is exposed, rebuked, and yet unrepentant? That's what we've had to think through and study through and pray through and work through and cry through over the last week. The Scriptures do not leave us rudderless on this issue. We don't have to guess or just do the best we can or figure it out. We've got the Scriptures. Praise God we have the Scriptures because you can, re- you can go to that source and you can say, this is right. Other people can come around and say, I think you're interpreting this wrong. We can bear down together, but it's the source. And as we look together in the source, we can come to truth because of the clarity of Scripture. Praise God for that. What safety we have in the Scriptures. So we're going to hone in on these two twin texts this morning. Titus 3, 10 and 11, and Romans 16, 17 and 18. It says, Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted, or warped, your translation might say, is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned, and Romans 16, 17 and 18 says, Now I urge you, brethren, mark those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned, and avoid them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. We're going to have three points this morning out of those two verses. And it's first how to recognize a factious man, this unrepentant factious man. Our responsibility in light of the factious man and the reason for this heavy-handed response. So beginning with how to recognize the factious man, we'll, we'll look at the definition of the word in Titus 3.10. Then we'll look to Romans 16, 17, 18 to focus on what such a man produces and how he advances his deceptions. Those are three ways we can recognize him. Just the definition of the word, what the outcome of his actions are, and then you can look at and you can start seeing how he's accomplished, how he's made the, the uh, progress to cause the divisions. And all of those ways you can say, oh, wow, I've seen that. And you can know what you're dealing with. So what does the word mean? In Titus 3.10, it's heretikos. It's where we get the word heretic, right? That's the transliteration. That's what uh, Matthew Malacosio's King James Version Bible sitting in his lap says this morning is the heretic. It's translated here a factious man in the New American Standard Bible. Which one is it? Is it a heretic, somebody who holds to heretical uh, beliefs, or is it a factious man, somebody that's doing divisive things? Well, it's, it's really both. So both are right because at, at its root the word means to choose. This is MacArthur and I find it helpful. I'm going to quote more. I'm going to quote outside of myself more often this morning than I typically do because I want you to see this isn't something that just Matt believes. I want it, I want because I don't want people to say, "Wow, Matt's doing this." and he's coming up with some kind of wild thing. No, this it, is what the Bible teaches and I'm not out on an island thinking it's what the Bible teaches. MacArthur says the term came to signify the placing of self-willed opinions above the truth. Refusing to even consider the view that is contrary to your own. So the, 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 the heretic is entrenched or the divisive man at heart he doesn't want to consider the possibility that he might be wrong and even if other people try to entreat him and convince him no, 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 look, you, I think you're seeing this wrongly. No, I won't. I won't consider that. They become defensive. They won't listen, but they will go and they'll go talk. They'll talk to other people who will listen to them, but they won't listen to you. You see how it causes dissensions? 
They're, they're convinced they're right and they'll find people that agree with them and they'll tell the people that agree with them how right they are. And then they'll convince some people. And it causes the division. But they won't think together with the whole church, particularly not with people that disagree with their interpretation of a doctrine or a practice. That's who they are at heart. They've chosen where they are and they won't move. MacArthur goes on, The factious person will not submit to the Word or to godly leaders in the church. He's a law to himself and he has no concern for spiritual truth or unity. Although false teachers certainly are the most devastatingly factious, Paul is here casting a broader net which includes anyone in the church who is divisive or disruptive. Factious men, whether over doctrinal or practical issues, are critically dangerous. Why? Because the consequences of insubordination of non-submission and bickering can be so destructive of the unity of the Lord's people. Let's remember again, that's John MacArthur. When such a man is called out for his behavior or for his views, he'll become all the more difficult and obstinate. He lacks the humility to consider the possibility that he might be the one that's wrong. Imagine that there's a doctrinal or a biblical disagreement and the elders offer to patiently teach the man through their position and to hear him out on his. The heretic or the factious man says, No, thank you. I don't want to work through it. I don't want to hear it. I won't consider what you're saying. I don't want to search the Scriptures with you. No, thank you. They will reject the offer because he's already chosen. He knows what he's going to do. It doesn't matter what you show him. He doesn't want to see where you're coming from. He knows what he's going to do. And he's not open to considering anything. Five people can be in a room with the factious man and the other four can agree on the nature of the events that took place and on who was wrong. But the factious man will double down in his own opinion. It doesn't matter if the majority say, no, 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 that's not what happened and that person wasn't wrong, you were wrong. No, the factious man doesn't care because they care about their perspective and that's it. And they double down. They've chosen. They know where they land. And they won't listen to reason. You can't help that person. That's the problem. You can't. If gone unexposed, such a man might run here and there telling people his narrative to get people on his side. But if pushed to broaden the circle and allow others to hear the details of the disagreement, such men run away. Such a man has already chosen what he wants to believe and will hold to his position or his narrative regardless of what anyone or everyone says. Such a man might meet to tell you why that they are leaving, but they absolutely refuse to seek any true reconciliation. Proverbs 28, 1-2 He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. Do you see that spirit in it? He... He separates himself because he's already chosen. He seeks his own desire. You give him sound wisdom, he'll quarrel against it. Why? He's a heretic. He's a factious man. He's already chosen. A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. Proverbs 18 is describing this type of man. They may clothe their rebellion and self-willed autonomy in pious-sounding language as they separate themselves from accountability. They might say things like, I'm free in Christ to do whatever I want. But let me let you know this. You are not free in Christ to rebel against the clear teachings of Scripture. You're not. And you are not free in Christ to rebel against the authority of the church as a covenant member. You're not. You're not free in Christ to leave your wife. And you're not free in Christ to do a lot of things, are you? You're, you're not free in Christ like that. We use pious-sounding language to make it sound like, no, I can do what I want to, but that's not biblical. God forbid we grant a letter to a man so he can take his self-willed, autonomous, scandal-mongering behavior to another church to spread the poison of division there. I love other churches too. I don't just love Manorville Fellowship. I love other churches. So often churches are just glad to get rid of people and they grant the letter. Well, good riddance. The letter is a letter of recommendation. Do we take this stuff seriously or not? I do. We must. And we've got to do harder things than a lot of people are willing to do, don't we? We'll give an account. But moving on from there, let's go beyond what the word means and let's consider what the man produces. And for that we turn to Romans 16, 17 where it says, Now I urge you, brethren, mark those 
who cause dissensions and hindrances. What's a dissension? This word means discord or standing apart. They cause discord or they cause there to be a section of people who stand apart from the rest of the unified body. Where there once was a church working together in one mind, in one accord, there's now a palpable discord. There's someone who causes that. There's someone at the root of that. Where there once was a church standing together, there's now a church standing apart from one another into factions or camps. Sometimes the factions are large and sometimes they're small. But that just depends on the influence of the man, not of the nature of his heart. He's still the same guy. If he's very effective, he was more dangerous as a factious man. But if he wasn't very dangerous, he was still a factious man. He just wasn't very good at it. But you deal with it the same way. It's not based off of how big the problem he causes is. It's based off of who he is. Big or small, they're the result of the self-willed man. And often it manifests itself in pro-leadership and anti-leadership camps. Whether big camps or small camps, that's how it does it. Because why? Strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So Satan wants to sow the discord against the leadership to break people off and to stop the growth, to chop off the effectiveness, to chop off the discipleship. He wants to destroy it. So clear. You can watch it happen. And you can understand it when you just sit down and think. With scriptures in hand, it comes alive. And you're like, oh, that's what's happening. 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 12. I exhort you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. Wow. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and same judgment. For I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, by closed people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. It's this factiousness, right? Somebody's stirring things up with these minute disagreements to get people in their camps against one another instead of standing together in Christ. Such, this all agreeing and there being no divisions is only possible when we walk according to the scriptural principles that we laid out in our covenant. Everybody ain't going to agree on every matter of faith or practice. It's not going to happen. But if we agree on the things we laid out in our church covenant, this is possible. What? Where there are disagreements concerning areas of faith or practice, we will work together through such disagreements with patience in the church. And, I mean, if you do that, We're going to work through these Bible in hand to see what the Bible says and everybody's going to be called to do what the Bible says. There you go. But then after you've done that, we will recognize and accept those whose consciences differ from ours when the church has deemed a belief or practice acceptable and we will not flaunt our liberties in front of those with weaker consciences. So if we don't get our way and we're like, hey, we're not going to bind anybody's conscience here. We see where both of you are coming from. Walk in the purity of your conscience. Do what you think is right. We can't tell you for sure. We see where you're coming from. Trust Jesus and He'll work it out. And I'm going to love you anyway. If you do both of these things, you can be in unity in the midst of minute disagreements, but they won't become divisions. They won't become camps because we unite in Christ and love each other anyway, knowing that we're justified not by our works, but by the completed work of Christ who died for not only our willful sins, but for where we just don't see things clearly enough. And we don't have to get everything right. We want to, but we don't have to to go to heaven. We go by faith. And we unite together with people who we believe are truly seeking that sort of obedience to Christ and truly trusting in Christ. And we throw a cloak of silence over what is displeasing and we love them anyway. You can be unified. You cannot have factions, but you've got to have that heart. It's called the heart of a Christian. The reason that's in our covenant is because it's what God says a Christian will look like. At the very best, this kind of activity, this dissension stir, is the evidence of immaturity. But if a person persists when biblically addressed, you can rest assured you're dealing with a factious man. But not only does he produce dissensions, he produces... You see that next word, it's hindrances. Uh, That word's interesting. Does anybody know the uh, the, uh, Greek word for that one? I don't throw out the Greek all the time. Sometimes I just define it because who cares how... You don't know what it means anyway, right? You don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right. Michael will tell you most of the time I'm not. But you don't know. <laughs> so I just don't say, I just don't use it often. But this time I will. Scandalon. Scandalon. 
hindrances, scandal on. It's where we get the word scandal. They produce dissensions and they produce scandals. One who gives an enticement to unbelief is what it means. Now, this unbelief isn't referring to unbelief in Jesus. It means unbelief in the church's doctrine or practice or purity. They sow seeds of discord. They create something where everybody's... They're now stumbling over a church that was doing well. Hindrances contrary to the teaching which you've learned and turn away from those people. The church is doing great. No sin can be pointed out. No doctrine can be biblically challenged. But they'll insist something is wrong. And they'll refuse to humbly study together to get to the bottom of it. They'll insist that the error is serious and that people need to side with them regardless of what the elders or the church majority says. And some will follow them. And that's terrifying. Why is it terrifying? Because often this word for scandal on, this word for hindrances here, is translated as, as a stumbling block. It's actually used by Jesus in Matthew 18. Turn to Matthew 18, 6 through 9. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung about his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. There's your word. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it's inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling blocks comes. We're looking at the hindrances. These hindrances are what we're talking about here. Within the church, the person who causes these stumbling blocks, that causes simple people who truly trust in Jesus to be led astray and causes divisions in the church, woe to you who causes that. He then goes on to say in verse 8, if your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's talking about if within the church body somebody's causing you to stumble, you cut them off. If they're, the, if they're exposed as the stumbling block, as the one who creates hindrances, cut them off and throw them from you. For it's better that you enter life crippled and lame than you have two hands and feet and than be cast into the fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It's better that you enter into life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into fiery hell. That's, that's not talking about the way he uses it earlier in the book of Matthew about if your eye causes you to lust. You, you know, not, not like that. This is talking about in the context of a church body when you've got people who are causing stumbling blocks you cast that member off. How do we know? Because it goes forward. Look in Matthew 8 15 through 20. Where if you have this scandal creator, you have this uh, dissension creator, you have this self-willed person who won't repent, it tells us how to deal with them. If your brother sins, go to him and show him his fault in private. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother. He's your brother. He listened. But if he doesn't listen, you take two more with you so that the mouth of two or three witnesses every word shall be confirmed. But if he won't listen, what's it exposing? It's exposing that at heart he's already chosen and he won't listen to sound reason. He won't listen to others. He's entrenched. He's a factious man. He's a heretic. It's exposing that. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the whole church. And if he refuses to listen even to the entire church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Cut him off and throw him from you. Because he's more of a hindrance to the purity of your church and the effectiveness of your church than he is an asset to your church. Truly I say to you, whatever you as the whole church together binds on earth will be what was bound in heaven, that God's on the side of the church against this factious man. And whatever you loose on earth will be what's loosed in heaven. Again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that he may ask, it might be done for him by my Father in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst. Do you understand that? That's the context of what's going on here. Lastly, let's consider how that the man advances his deceptions. Also in Romans 16, verse 18, he does it through smooth speech, flattering speech, and by targeting the unsuspecting. Who by their smooth speech first. What's that mean? It means good or honest sounding speech. The stories they tell seem plausible because of the consistent way in which the man speaks. The factious man is not an obvious fraud, otherwise he wouldn't garner a following. That's what you got. Well, he just seems so genuine. Yeah, that, uh, factious men do seem genuine. 
or they couldn't create a faction. They're not going to get people to follow them if they've got horns coming out the top of their head and they're doing like this with a pitchfork. That won't work. It has to be deceptive, doesn't it? For it to work. So the factious man, he'll definitely throw in a ton of Bible Scripture. Bible Scripture, you say? Mm Mm-hmm. Bible Scripture. I think we forget that Satan himself knows Scripture than any of us, and he's a devil still, isn't he? Along with the Scripture, there'll be a ton of super spiritual words and pious-sounding bragging. It won't come across as bragging. It'll be kind of these humble brags. But I don't care about anything in this world. None of it matters to me. Let everything just burn up, they'll say. They don't care about nothing because they're so, they're so on this other plane of holiness. You've got to watch out for that person. I don't want any hospitality. I just want you to serve others. I don't care if anybody ever serves me at all, they'll say. All I care about is the ecclesia. Maynardville Fellowship is my only reason for living. Why do they say ecclesia instead of church? Well, because it sounds more pious if you throw in some fancy sounding Greek word. They don't do it to teach, but to give the illusion of devotion. Such, such is a cheap, easy illusion and substitute for true piety. If you call Jesus Yeshua, you call the church the ecclesia, you call money mammon, it gives the appearance of you being trustworthy. Because who in their right mind would invoke such sacred themes in the original language, no less, with dishonesty or with wicked intent? We think, who in the world would do that? So it makes us trust them. It's smooth words to make you think you can trust them. The truth is that there's no fear of God before their eyes at all. They'll shamelessly and continuously use smooth speech to gain the trust of their hearers. And the whole ruse is thoroughly demonic. 2 Corinthians 11, 13-15 Such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Don't be fooled. And through the use of such deceptive, damnable tactics, it becomes easier to deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting with plausible-sounding, slanderous stories that are always told in the secret place. And sadly, the naive will easily look over the gossip and the slander because of the smooth-sounding words. And they'll believe the smooth-sounding, gossip-spreading, scandal-monger over established leadership that's served faithfully and invites everybody. Let's think through this together. They'll still believe the scandal monger. But not only will the speech be smooth in order to make certain that you trust him and his intentions, he'll also use flattering speech. We covered the basic idea of flattery last week. Remember, I'm coming to you, they'll say, because I trust you. I know I'm safe with you. I know you can help me think through this issue. And I'm not sure anybody else can. They'll flatter you. They'll pull you in. They'll confide in you because they know they can rely on you to maintain their confidence. They'll make you feel mature and wise, but by listening to them, you show that you're immature and foolish. But here it is again this week. The word has even more connotations. It actually means this word as flattering speech means more than even just speech when you study the word out. It's somebody who gives blessing to you. So they're they're speaking that they want your best good. They give you praise to tell you how highly they think of you. They flatter you. And then it also includes that they will give gifts and even, even generous gifts to make you trust them. He wants them to feel treasured and valued by him because ultimately he wants your loyalty because he craves the drama and the attention or maybe just being validated in his opinion by garnering a following. But lastly, who does he target? He targets the unsuspecting. This word's interesting. It means the innocent, guileless, or simple. It's not even a completely bad word. This person's not bad. They just... Aren't they're, they're innocent? They don't think. They don't see the darkness. They're so in it. They don't. They, they would. It would. This kind of behavior would be so far away from them that they don't think anybody would ever do it. So when they hear it, they don't think, "Wow, I don't know if I should believe this or not." They think this must be true because they inclined to trust and to think the best. Those are good words, in a way, aren't they? 
Well, yeah, but there's another definition that overlaps with this word that's less admirable. It's actually how one of the versions translates it, naive. You're naive too. You're those good things, but it also those good things make you naive. They target people who major on love, who major on thinking the best. And, they pr- and, and praise God for those people. We need those kinds of people, but often those kinds of people lack discernment. And that's why we also need the people who major on discernment and for whom trust becomes difficult. There ain't no scandal monger ever going to sow their seeds of discord against me and David with Mark and Robin. It ain't happening. That's going nowhere fast. They've known us forever. They know our character. And it ain't going to be poisoned. So often the scandal monger will target new people who think the best of the first people with whom they form a relationship, who talk smooth and flatter. And in their trusting naivety, they believe the scandal monger over the tired and tested leaders of the church. The ruse of attention wins the day. Don't get sucked in. Watch the integrity with which we work through difficulty and watch the lack thereof of the scandal monger who, as I said last week, unapologetically runs away like a cockroach to the darkness. You know who you can trust. Allow things to play out before you form your opinions. He who speaks first seems right until another comes along and examines him. But not, we've seen this, how to recognize the factious man. But what's our responsibility in light of the factious man? Turn to Titus again, Titus 3.10. First we see that we have to give them a warning. Notice it says, Reject a factious man after a first and second warning. This word is an admonition, a warning, or a reprimand. We live in a culture that absolutely despises strong leadership, don't we? In the Reformed Church today, people look to men like Calvin and Luther and they look to them as heroes, but had they been in their churches, they would have accused them as being heavy-handed and harsh and they'd have probably left. When you read the Reformers, they wrote and preached with punch, with power, and with an authority. There's a reason that Calvin was ran off from Geneva for three years. And it wasn't because he was so soft and cuddly. Jonathan Edwards was fired from his church for his unflinching stance on communion. See if this don't sound familiar. Sounds like your pastor's here. Edwards advocated the simple idea that none ought to be admitted to the communion and privileges of members of the visible church of Christ in complete standing, but such who are in profession in the eyes of the church's Christian judgment, godly and gracious persons, that we actually know you're walking with Jesus and we don't just admit to everybody at the table. He stood on that to the point of getting fired. If we take this stuff seriously, we'll be loving... But loving requires firmness as much as it requires gentleness. It requires both things. We will show conviction and urgency. Everything won't be quiet, comforting, whispering tones. And here we have the language of warning. We must warn those who are in error, especially those who are in this error, because this error can absolutely wreck a church. I love this church. I don't want it wrecked. 2 Timothy 4, 2 through 5. I would have you turn there, but I'd say most people can quote it. Preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great persons and instruction. You look up these words and they'll blow your mind. Reprove. That word means blame someone, correct them, punish, expose publicly, to disgrace the person, to put them to open shame, to cross-examine them when you think that they're lying, to treat them with contempt, to correct them and refute them and lay them bare in the public for everyone to know who they are. Well, that don't sound nice. I've, I've told you a lot of times, guys, this book ain't nice. It's holy. It's true, but it ain't nice. It's hard to even find that word in the book. 
We rebuke. Why? Because it matters. So we do these things. We, we reprove. The word for rebuke means to command. He tells Timothy to command, to overcome with a powerful word. Wait, I thought we had to use hush tones. Guys, you've been reading the Gospel Coalition too much. That's not what we do. To allege as a criminal, to basically say this person's dangerous. Or to censure. That means to express severe disappointment in a public statement. That's the range of meaning for that word. He says that when you do this, you do it with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. Why? What? What? Oh, they've already decided what they believe and they're not going to change, so they're going to leave teachers that are calling them to the absolute standard of Scriptures and find people that already agree with them. That's what the Bible says they'll do. And they'll turn away their ears from the truth. And they'll turn aside to myths. But you, what do you do? Well, obviously you try to keep them at all costs. No, you, you're sober in all things. You understand what's going on. You endure and weather the hardship. You do the work of an evangelist and you fulfill your ministry unflinchingly. That was Paul's last words to Timothy, chapter 4 of 2 Timothy right before he got his head chopped off. He wanted to leave him with that. Why? Because that matters for a healthy church. You've got to do this, Timothy. Knowing it's going to be the last thing he ever writes to him, that's what he writes to him. People expect constant gentleness from elders. But an elder who is constantly gentle, according to the cultural definition of the word, would be derelict of his duties. We see a place for other tones... The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, 18 through 21, he says, Now, some in the church have become arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. He's challenging them. And then he says, For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with a spirit of gentleness? He's saying it's up to you. Depending on how, if you back down from your arrogance, I'll come with the spirit of gentleness and I'll restore you. But if you stand steadfast in your obstinance, I will come with a rod of correction and judgment, with the reproof and rebuke. I will expose you like I'm supposed to do, like he told Timothy he had to do. I will censure you. Why? Because the keys of the kingdom are given to the church, and that's how you exercise them. It seems mean. Do we believe the book or do we go by how we think things should seem? But not only do we warn, we show restraint. Look at the grace in this. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning. That's what he told Titus. Realize the factious man, he's often coming at the leadership. And the leadership in the flesh, if they acted in the flesh, and God forbid we ever do, He'll be upset because we are, we're men, not stones. These things hurt, and they cut us deep. But he tells Titus, you can't act in how you feel like acting. You've got to show restraint. You've got to give opportunity for repentance. Even though they've caused major problems, even though they've attacked you personally, you've got to give them grace and a first and second warning. We must be gracious, long-suffering, patient, merciful people. We should long for reconciliation and restoration. We should be eager to extend moderation, trusting the confession of immature Christians, even those who have been involved in discord and factious behavior. We see naive ones who were led into the era of factiousness often. 1 Corinthians 3, you know, I've already mentioned, I'm a Paul, I'm a Paulus, I'm a Cephas. But listen to how he deals with the people that are caught up in that. In 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 5, he says, I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. He doesn't say you're not Christians because you've done this. Look at the grace. I look to you, as, yeah, you're fleshly. I'm calling you out for it, but you're in Christ. Look at the moderation. Look at the grace that's extended there. 
I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, yet you were not able to receive it. Indeed, you are still not able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is still jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? For one says, I am of Paul, another, I am of Apollos. Are you not mere men? Who then is Apollos? And what is Paul? They are just servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each. Ultimately, what do we look to? We look beyond all the leaders and we look to the book. We look to Christ Himself. And we all unite in Him. And we give people that opportunity. We give people the warning with the hope of restoration. And then when they repent, we receive them back with open arms. And in, first, in Titus 3.10, we see that we should even be gracious to the leader of the divisions. You're rejecting not just people caught up in it, but the factious man himself. After the first and second admonition, this is Calvin. For neither shall have a right to pronounce a man to be a factious man, nor shall we be at liberty to reject him until we have first endeavored to bring him back to sound views. He does not mean any admonition whatever or that of a private individual, but an admonition given by a minister with the public authority of the church. For the meaning of the apostle's words is as if he had said, the heretics must be rebuked with solemn and severe, here's this word again, censure. Doing what it said to do, what he told Timothy to do, a public censure. That you actually point them out, you publicly shame them for what they've done, you call them to repentance, and if they'll repent, you restore them. That's what he says to do. David and I failed at that. We've given a lot of private rebukes. And we've let it go on way more than once or twice. Why? Because we didn't know this stuff. We don't know everything. Were the church reformed? And always reforming. We don't know everything. So we're learning on the fly. We, 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 we repent to you for our failures, but it wasn't, it wasn't intentional. We are learning. And this has forced us to learn over the last few weeks. But after you've shown the restraint, you've given the warning, and you've shown the restraint, we must act decisively. And that's this word here, reject. You see that in your, in your text, reject a factious man after a first and second warning. The word's an imperative. It's a command. It's not an option. It's a, if we don't do what it says, it's like, thou shalt not steal. It's not an option. You're like, well, you, you know, do you really have to do this? Do we have to not steal? If you don't think so, I'm going to come and take your truck. You know, we have to do it. Because Scripture commands it. It's an imperative. Refuse. The word reject here, it can mean refuse. To not pay attention to. To have no other dealings with. To shun. Wow, that's heavy. Yes, it is. And when you do it, you'll be called unloving. And you'll be called cruel. You'll be called unchristian. And you'll be called cult-like. It's just what you'll be called. But the best word for it, really, is obedient. We're slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. We do what He says. Such shunning is biblical regardless of the nature of the unrepentant transgression, actually. It actually says in 1 Corinthians 5, 11-13, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's unrepentant in his immorality or covetousness or idolatry, if he's a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not to even eat with such a person. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside the church? God judges. Remove that wicked man from amongst yourself. That person that says they're a Christian, but then they're marked by this open rebellion and unrepentant spirit that you're supposed to put them out of the church, reject them the table, and have nothing to do with them until they repent. But for the factious man who's been warned, the command is even greater. It says here, have nothing else to do with them. It's different. We see the same thing in our Romans 16, 17, and 18 text where it says, Mark those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned, and avoid them. This word for mark, it might not say mark in yours, it might say keep an eye on, it might say that in your text, it might be, say beware of. I use the King James Version word here, 
not only because I love Matthew Malacosio, but because I believe it's a faithful rendering. Yes, it means to be aware of or to watch out for, but it's also a congregation-wide alert. It's telling everybody. It's a congregation thing. It's the censure kind of idea. Of we're going to expose this and tell everybody, so it's, a, it's putting a public mark on them. Everybody's supposed to mark them, have nothing else to do with them, and to shun them. The man's been exposed and he's marked by the entire congregation as a dangerous man. That the whole congregation is to be informed of the man and his activities and his proven character. Why? Because he is divisive and he causes hindrances to the unity and the effectiveness of the church. And he's not going to listen because his, his heels are dug in and you've already tried. And he won't listen to reason because he's a heretic, a factious man. He has chosen what he believes and he won't listen to reason. So your efforts won't work. He says to mark them and avoid them. To keep away from, this is William Hendrickson, to keep away from, to turn away from, to bend out of the regular line. So you actually go out of your way not to be around them. To go out of the way to avoid or to shun. Paul does not say oppose them. For though some of those whom he addresses might have been able to do that successfully, others could easily have been led astray if they entered into a debate. Therefore, Paul urges the brothers to avoid these dissenters altogether. He knew that the possibility that some of the members might otherwise have lost their bearings was real, especially in view of the clever methods that the scandalmonger employed. So he says, since it's a danger to you, and we don't know if you'll be led astray by them and they can be very cunning. Don't oppose them. Avoid them. Don't be around them. They're toxic. They're poisonous. Is what he's saying. John Chrysostom said this. He said, Contentions with factious men are fruitless. And Paul would not have us labor to no purpose, where nothing is to be gained, for they end in nothing. For when a man is perverted and predetermined not to change his mind, whatever might happen, why should you labor in vain, sowing seed upon a rock? Why do you contend in vain, and why do you beat about the air? We've seen how to recognize the factious man. We've seen how to respond to the factious man. And we've touched on the reason for this heavy-handed response, but we have some things in the text that are actually very explicit that we need to look at. So in the reason for this handy-handed response, first it tells us in in, uh, Titus 3 that the man is perverted or warped. That word means turned inside out, altered entirely, warped or subverted, has a distorted mind. This is Hendrickson again. The word rendered is distorted is very descriptive. Such a person is not living or seeing straight. He is mentally and morally turned or twisted. He is even worse than the man who colloquially is sometimes called a screwball. Dude ain't right. That's what he's saying. The guy that's like this, he ain't right. This ain't working right. He's twisted. He's messed up. It should be undeniably evident that this man is absolutely warped before this determination is made. You need to absolutely you don't need to do this quickly. Amen. We don't need to pull this trigger quickly, but when it becomes evident, we can say, no, we know, we can see this. Dude's warped. It's perverted. Once the it is certain this response is beyond appropriate. It's even urgent. John Calvin says, He declares that man to be ruined. He translates the word for warped or perverted as ruined. He says, He declares the man to be ruined as to whom there is no hope of repentance. Guys, that, that's not Matt Cook saying that. Y'all consider yourself to be a bunch of reformed people, right? This is John Calvin I'm reading. He declares the man to be ruined as to whom there is no hope of repentance. 
Because if our labor could bring back any man to the right path, it should by no means be withheld. The metaphor is taken from a building which is not merely decayed in some part, but it's completely demolished so that it's incapable of being repaired. Because he's warped, perverted, and ruined, it will follow that he is sinning, being self-condemned. That's our next point. He's sinning, being self-condemned. What does that mean? They go together. I I was going to do them as two points, but they're not. They go together. (coughs) Sinning, it means missing the mark. Hamartia. You know that one, the archery term? you're You're missing the mark. You're aiming at something, but you're not hitting what you're aiming at. And then the word, the next word for self-condemned, it's autokatakritos. You're like, well, why'd you tell me that? Auto, like autobiography, auto-self. Kata means against. Autokatakritos. It means judgment. So he is by his own self, he's, he's against himself and he's condemned because he's against himself. Basically, it's what it's saying is he's perverted in what he says the target is. But he don't even hit his own target. He's a hypocrite from his own standards. That's what it's saying. It's saying he requires you to live up to a standard, but he himself doesn't live up to the very standard that he's telling you you have to live up to. Such a man will say, you're harsh and heavy-handed. And you'll say, but I, brother, I don't feel like I am. Well, you're so argumentative. Look at you arguing now. Well, uh, you're being heavy-handed. Well, how dare you tell me I'm being heavy-handed? And his eyes will get big. He's self-condemned. Like, judge not that you be not judged, for by what judgment you judge, you shall be judged, and what measure you meet, it will be met unto you again. He's twisted and perverted in how he views things, calls you to a standard, but misses the mark, the ungodly mark. He ain't even consistent with how he implies the truth he's insisting on for his own life. It's, It's evident. And when you call him on it, it makes him mad. Because he's chosen what he believes and he won't listen to reason. And when you press him on it, he doesn't want to repent. So when you're pressing to repent, he puffs up in anger and he lashes out. You can't do anything with that man. Guys, you can't. You all probably have met that person, haven't you? You ever dealt with them? Like, does this resonate? You're like, man, I, I know that. I've met people like that. Have you? Anybody? I'm looking for nods. I'm like, maybe, am I, not, am I the only one? I'm seeing some nods. They're self-condemned. They're missing their own mark. They have a wrong-headed standard, entirely warped from reality, and inconsistent with the rest of the unified church, and they won't even be living up to that standard themselves. Then when the inconsistency is pointed out, they'll prattle on with some seemingly endless, impossible-to-follow argument about this or that loosely related concept. They'll at times admit that they might have come short of what they should have done, but... It was because of their past or it was because of some deception that they fell into or they, they responded wrongly to someone else's sin. But they'll never actually break. Their lies are reduced to fibs. Their slander is rebu- reduced to excusable self-protection. Their sin is, will most always be excused and the sins of others will most always be inexcusable. The sins of others will be seen as heinous and anger-inducing, while theirs are viewed as missteps and mistakes. They will deal in unequal balances in how they apply the law to themselves and to others. And it will be evident how warped that their perception is when you're around them. You'll know. They've exposed themselves. Ultimately, they refuse to forgive of any wrong that you've committed against them, but demand that you forgive them of all the wrongs that, you, that they've committed against you. They're slaves to their own appetite. That's in the Romans 16, 18 verse. It says, Avoid them. Why? For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. The expression used in the original for such people is the case... It, it, it contains a touch of contempt. It says, Such people... It is a, it's a, it's a, you know, those kinds of guys. It's, it's marking that kind of person with contempt. It's like saying, well, that sort of person. Paul clearly considers them to be imposters and quacks. He says that they're not serving our Lord Christ, but their own bellies. And by their own bellies, he means self-servers of any description who are slaves of their own desires, that they've entrenched themselves. It takes us back to that first point, doesn't it? It takes us back to they've already chosen. They're slaves to what they've already chosen and they won't 
alter from their course. They know what they want to believe and they know what they want to do and you cannot help them. You're wasting your time and ultimately keeping them around is dangerous to the body and dangerous to the factious man. You say, how? I love the old dead guys. The deader the better. And Ambrose has been dead a long, long time. We go back to Ambrose for this strong word, but listen to the unquestioned wisdom of this statement. It's therefore essential that such people should be disciplined once so that they may be without excuse. But if they are disciplined more often, they will only become more of an expert in evil. They'll become more deceptive in how they accomplish their tasks. He goes on to say, Someone who disciplines them often will appear to be trying to force them to become more devious to the destruction of many. You keep them around and they get better at doing it and it causes a big ruckus in the church. Guys, that's what David and I did. We failed you. We kept this around knowing it was going on and we kept rebuking him privately, not marking him, not warning anybody about it where people would come to us and say, such and such is such a good guy. Yeah, he is. We love him so much because we thought the good of him being here for him is better than the bad he can do. And we were wrong. We were flat wrong. Therefore, Ambrose says, they are to be sent away so that they might become the more negligent. And they might even perish, but at least when they perish, he says, it will be on their own, not dragging others with them. Is this heavy? I don't know that I ever remember preaching a heavier sermon. It's been heavy to carry. Nobody ever said pastoring was easy. You do what this book says and you stand on it when it's, when it's easy, you rejoice, and when it's hard, you grind through it for the reward that waits. Are we looking at reprobation here? And that's what Calvin said. You heard me read Calvin, but there's no hope of repentance. And reprobation is something that happens. It's a real thing that people can be hardened to the point of there's no return. We know that some men have committed the unpardonable sin. They've blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. They obstinately attribute the Spirit's work to the work of devils despite the testimony of Scripture and conscience. It could be that. They start saying when the church is functioning right and they attack it. And they even know that you're right, but they harden themselves in it. They, will, they hear the Scripture and they harden themselves in it. It could be that that's happened. That they've hardened themselves in their own opinion in the face of Scripture. They even know you're right, but they will not relent. It's scary. It's terrifying. God perhaps has touched, turned such a man over to Satan. Is God telling us that these uh, are unreprovable, uncorrectable, factious men are in that fearful state? Men who were marked out long ago for this condemnation, as it says in Jude 4? Perhaps. Perhaps not. I don't know for sure. A lot of guys that I respect, especially the old, old dead guys, that's what they thought. I'd be open to hearing an argument either way. But one thing I do know, if they're the elect, they'll be saved whether or not we ever restore them. Do we believe that? If they're gods, we don't have to be the agent for bringing them to himself. He'll save them regardless of what we do if they're his. And another thing I know is that refusing to do what God commands is not going to be what God uses to save them. You say, you know what? I think they're not beyond reaching and they, I think we, they still might be able to be saved. So we shouldn't do what the Bible says with them. That way we might be able to save them. That won't work. Our job is to do what God commands and to trust Him with the results. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Bound by conscience. This is where I am right now. Church discipline is something done, we believe, by the church. We'll hear you. We want to hear you. We had to present where we are and what we believe. But we'll hear you. We aren't going to do that in the worship part of the service. We'll dismiss anybody who wants to be dismissed after this when we have a formal session after the preaching part. But guys, we've labored over this and we've not landed on this haphazardly.
Where's the gospel in this? Guys, why are we not like this? It ain't because you're smart. It ain't because you're so righteous. It ain't because you're so good. You would be in the deepest, darkest sin you can imagine, far worse than anything you could, you've ever seen, except for God opened your eyes to what a sinner you are and He made you humble. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Yeah, He made you humble and gave you grace. He made you see the depth of your need. He made you see that your works can never get you there, that you don't see everything rightly, that you'll never be perfect, and that your only hope was one man who was. Therefore, you can be disagreed with and not rise up and not be so angry all the time. You can say, well, help me. Let's see what the Scriptures say and let's stand in it together. But ultimately, we'll never get it all right. But Jesus died for me. He died for us. And I can reunite together with people who see things differently than me. And I can love them like God calls me to in patience and deference because we're all saved by grace through faith in the completed work of Christ alone. There's the gospel in it. But people that won't be restored and won't do that, they don't believe the gospel. So how can you say that? If you won't forgive your brother, what's the Bible say? It says that the Heavenly Father will not forgive you of your trespasses because you don't understand the grace of God that's been extended to you. You don't understand the need of repentance. You don't have that sacrifice of God, the broken heart and the contrite spirit. If you've got it, praise God today. And we come to the table with broken hearts and contrite spirits saying, I would be damned, but you have died. And we rejoice in that with heavy hearts. Praying for those who haven't seen yet that God might bring them to Himself. Let's come to the table with those rejoicing yet heavy hearts today. Kind of gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how clear it is. I pray, Lord, that we're standing in it. Lord, that is our attempt. Lord, help us. Help us to be faithful in the discharge of our duties and use our efforts, Lord, tainted by sin, although they may be. We know they will be. We'll never be perfect. But, Lord, we are attempting to be faithful. We claim your blood. It's all we have. It's in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.